The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and WomenToWatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm your host and happy to be here every week. Um, we're going to have a really wonderful show this afternoon, and I'd like to give out that call-in number in case you're listening. We are live, and we love to hear from our listeners. That number is 888-329-3306. Again, 888-329-3306. We are joined this afternoon by two women. The first is our very own in-house executive advisor, I will say, Tish Squilero. Tish is the CEO of Candor Consulting and co-founder and CEO of Roadmap, which is an interactive learning platform that prepares uh, workforce-bound students for career success. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to be joined by our very special guest today. Her name is Mary Ellen O'Toole, and Mary Ellen is a retired FBI agent. Uh, she was a profiler, and she's currently director of forensic science um, at George Mason University. So I'm, I'm very thrilled uh, to, to get to Mary Ellen today and, and share her story. But we're going to start with Tish. Uh, Tish, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm very good. How are you doing? We are great today, and I'm local in Pennsylvania, so how about that? Oh, very good. It's always nice to be home. You do a lot of traveling. I do, I do. Listen, I want to tell you, on my way to the show, I stopped at the post office and picked up my book, Head Trash 2. Very excited. Oh, good. Yep. Yes, um, we're getting a lot of great feedback on the second book. So good, it's, good. It's live, it's, it's out there, and hopefully we'll hear from some of your viewers as well. Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, to follow up the, the first book with, um, you know, dealing with our own uh, traits and, and uh, emotions that kind of keep us stuck with how to deal with others. And I understand today you're going to focus on guilt um, and how that impacts our both our personal and professional lives. Yes, guilt. And, you know, being an Italian, uh, it was actually infused <laughs> in our milk. I, I'm, very, I'm very familiar with that. Yes. yes. I'm sure you are, Susan. Um, yes, guilt is something which, you know, is is something that everyone should have. You know why? Because it makes you do the right thing. Mm. And in many ways, we may not like doing certain things, uh, but we realize it's the right thing. And when it crosses the line and we make it into something that's now not healthy or head trash, as we call it, well, it looks two ways. It's really where we make um, no decision out of guilt or we put people in positions from guilt, right? So we don't really objectively make a, a, a decision, either both business or professionally, for the right things to do, but what feels right. And sometimes what feels right isn't the right thing to do. Mm. For example, people staying in positions at companies that really shouldn't be, or staying in relationships longer than you should, right? Those things, if you thought about them as what's healthy, probably shouldn't continue, but that requires a hard discussion. Yes. 
The other form of guilt is when you are a guilt wielder, which means you inflict guilt on others. So you get people to do stuff for you because you've done so much for them. Mm-hmm. How many times has someone reminded you how great they are to you? That's why you should do something for them. That sort of use of guilt to say, you owe me. And that's constantly getting folks to do stuff. And they may comply once, twice, even three times, but the relationship they're building with that person is usually of resentment. So those two forms of guilt hit people every day in both business and personal. And it's one of our seven head trashes because it's real and it happens all the time in our decision making. Would you say it's my thinking would be that it might be one of the the tougher um, traits that you have to deal with when you're dealing with executives and leaders. Um, in order, in other words, you know, to first uh, have them acknowledge that that might be something that they use over employees as a leader. Is that the case? Well, it's one that has the ability to be really convinced by you that it's okay. Because when you think about it, there's ways to rationalize not having that tough conversation with someone, at least not this year. We'll do it next year. Or I'm going to stay in this relationship because, oh, my goodness, think about what it would be like if I didn't do it and I did it later. So we could rationalize. So I'd say out of all the head trashes, it's the one we can convince ourselves should wait or we shouldn't do it. Because it doesn't feel good at times to be the person who's very objective and doing the right thing. And so that in itself causes more, um, you know, people to have guilt over certain decisions than some of the other things. Let me ask you, do you, in your experience, have you seen this to be a trait that more women have than men? I certainly well, think, you know, I think of motherhood, uh, right? There's a lot of, gosh, a lot of guilt there for working moms that they're never giving enough attention <clears throat> to all areas of their life. Um, and so I, I tended to think that it would be more common for women. Well, it's a great question, and I think it does have two answers. One is guilt is shown in two ways. So I think what you're describing is someone guilt-ridden. So do women tend to feel guilt more than men that way where they will feel badly about doing something, so they'll do it anyway? But the guilt wilder, the one who inflicts guilt on someone mm-hmm. to do something, I would say that might be less women who feel that way and actually wouldn't do that to somebody else. So I think guilt as a whole probably equals out that it's something both male or female have. It's how it's being displayed, but at the end of the day, it's both guilt. And what are some of the exercises you suggest to the the people that you work with? Sure. I try to get folks to realize what is the right thing to do because accountability is something that people who are suffering from guilt as a head trash struggle with. And if you're going to hold yourself accountable to make a decision for yourself or your company, you're going to have to look at it in a way of what is the right thing for the company and what is the right thing for you. And so when you start to place it into that sort of um, questioning for yourself, you're going to realize that you're not holding you or them, if it's a, a conversation, accountable to what's really happening. And if it's the case of having an employee who really is not performing, but you're not doing anything about it. Well, you have to say to yourself, is that employee who's not performing feeling good every day, coming in and not performing, and knowing that the people around them look at them as they're not performing? No one likes to step into that. However, they may not have the comfort of standing up and saying, I can't do this. You owe it to them to have that discussion with them where it's not working. And when you start to look at that being accountable to you and them, 
all of a sudden you can start to rationalize, well, if I don't do the conversation, how bad is that? If I don't help them make that choice, what kind of friend am I? So you really can turn it around and say, wait a minute, the right thing to do actually is going to feel better because otherwise I'm letting that other person down. Mm. And accountability is about not letting things down, letting things slip, taking ownership. And that's where we see that when we help people look at it that way and understand that it's actually worse by not having the conversation and understand why, Mm -hmm. it becomes a lot easier to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Do you ever see that trait, that guilt, um, over um, a group of people or a department or, you know, in other words, not just an individual? Do you ever see a group of people acting and using that as a way to try to motivate their team? I have. You know, it's interesting. As companies scale and they have their startup crowd, which are the ones that were part of the business when they were five, ten people, and then now we're 150 people. I see guilt coming out in ways where those five or ten people kind of use it to their benefit mm. to stay in roles that they shouldn't stay in or right. roles that they're not really able to be in. Right. And they'll use guilt wielding or having someone inflict guilt to make them remember how long they've been there and how committed they are and that they were one of the first five. Mm. And that's not always the best criteria to make decisions for a business or, for that matter, in relationships. So when I see it like that, it's usually a group that has something in common where they feel, um, you know, entitlement of some sort coming to them. Yes. And they'll use guilt to maintain that. Yes, yes. Well, it's a great discussion, um, Tish. And let me ask you, what uh, what will we be talking about next month? Uh, I think it's paranoia. I don't think we've covered that one um, okay. yet, which is another wonderful topic to, to describe where you always think someone is out to get you and that victim mentality is, is stemmed from that. So it will be definitely another interesting dialogue with great tips. Great. And I want to uh, remind our listeners again that, that your second book has come out. It's Head Trash 2, and they can go to headtrash.com to, to get the book and the information for the outlets. Is that right? Yes. It's at, you can go onto Amazon. It's in your local Barnes & Noble. And this one is really to give people an understanding what's it like to live with another or be part of a company where the people around you also have some of these head trash traits. And now you have to figure out how do I manage through that. So it's, it's really an evolution of, okay, the first book was about here's where I am, and now it's okay, here's where everyone else is. So it, it is written with a sense of humor to, again, provide real-life stories mm-hmm. about what's it like to be in a guilt-ridden family and how do you deal with that. So you'll find many, many pieces of, you know, real-life scenarios where I bet Everyone can find something that relates to them. That's terrific. I'm really looking forward to reading it. And one of the things I love so much about your writing is is the fact that you do use humor and some real-life stories. It makes it for a much more enjoyable read and memorable. And most of them are my stories. So good news is I'm filled and rid with them. (laughs) (laughs) As we all are. As we, if you're human, right, you're dealing with this every day. You definitely have it. That's right. right. All right, Tish, thank you so much. I hope you uh, have a great rest of the day, and we look forward to hearing from you next month. Same as you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Okay, we are now going to bring on our very special guest this afternoon, a woman I am, have been looking forward to speaking to for quite some time. And again, her name is Mary Ellen O'Toole. Mary Ellen is a retired FBI agent and profiler. She is currently the Director of Forensic Science at George Mason University. Mary Ellen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. So wonderful to have you here this afternoon, and I, I, I know we're not going to have enough time for all of the questions I have, um, but uh, okay. <laughs> I, I'm thrilled to have you. You're such, you're such an inspiration. When the listeners uh, hear your story, I know for sure that they are going to take something away from the show today um, that relates to their own life. So as we spoke about prior to the show, I wanted to start out mm-hmm. with your growing up years um, and the experiences you had that had a big influence on the work that you eventually did and have come to do today. So why don't you talk for a couple of years about, I'm sorry, talk for a couple of minutes, minutes about your life growing up. Uh, I understand you were born in San Francisco, um, but the, the majority of your time growing up was in Springfield, Illinois. That's correct. I, I was born in San Francisco, and um, but at a very early age, uh, because of divorce, my mother moved my older brother and older sister and, and me back to Springfield, Illinois. That was her city where she was born. So um, at that time, we um, because of the divorce, we had nothing, so we moved in with my, my aunt and uncle, my mom's older brother and sister, who said that we could stay with them for a couple of months until mom got her feet on the ground. And um, 18 years later, we were all still living there. And um, as one very, very, very happy, very content family was very little, actually, just in terms of material things. But I really... I really feel like, um, and even realized it at the time, what a very happy upbringing that I had. I was very fortunate to um, have the family and the support that I had, which was not a traditional family, but um, we were uh, we were a family that got along and that really believed in one another, and that has served me so well over the years. Well, one of the things that that strikes me as um, interesting because. You know, you you grew up very poor. I, if, if I'm correct, there were seven people in a 700 square foot home. There were six of us in six. a home that was a little bit smaller than 750 square feet. Yes. Yeah, and again, as you mentioned, you know, not a, a lot of money. But in addition to that, the, you you didn't have your father in your life, and that always, you know, is um, a situation that is makes it more difficult as a young girl. And what's interesting is that both your mother and father um, worked for the FBI, your mother in a very unique role as um, a stenographer for J. Edgar Hoover, um, very fascinating, and your father worked in the FBI as well. So as a young girl, talk about your own aspirations and whether that fact that that dad was in the FBI but was never a part of your life had any influence on your your decision to follow in that path as well well it's it's an interesting question because most people would think that that would have impacted my career goals and maybe on some some level it actually did but when I was growing up women could not be FBI agents we could work in the FBI as stenographers 
our clerks, but there were no women agents until after J. Edgar Hoover died, and that was in 1972. So my father was an FBI agent. This was after he was a Jesuit priest for 15 years. He was an agent for approximately eight years, and that's where he met my mother, who was a stenographer, uh, and spent some of the time working as J. Edgar Hoover's personal secretary when he came to Chicago to work on a variety of cases. Um, because I never knew my father, I never had conversations with him about his work in the FBI. I do have his, his file, so I know what he did. But my mother spoke very, very highly of J. Edgar, and she really liked him. She talked about how kind and he was and that he had a good sense of humor. He was very good to the people that worked for him. And I think that that was very inspirational to me. But, again, it was at a time when I could not aspire to be an FBI agent. And yet you did anyway, which I think, you know, in speaking with you, Mary Ellen, I sense such a, um, a conviction in the fact that if, if you're told you cannot do something, that's going to motivate you even more. Am I right? <laughs> I think so, especially if it's something that I really, I really want to do and, um, and being an FBI agent just was something that I didn't know anything about. I knew that I wanted to be in law enforcement after I graduated with my master's degree in mental health. I thought, I can't do this all my life. I think I'll go into law enforcement, and I did. Uh, and then I was recruited into the FBI, and I was thrilled and excited, and I thought, I have to do this. Um, I was finally accepted and then went to the academy, and my first week there, I had to take a physical fitness test with the rest of the 40 students in my class, and I got the worst grade ever, not just the worst grade in my class. I got the worst grade that they'd ever seen. <laughs> I got negative points on my physical where you have to run and do the push-ups and the sit-ups and all of that. And so they came in, and they had a piece of paper in their hand, and they said, you will never pass this test. You only have six weeks and you'll have to take it again. And if you don't take it and pass it then, we absolutely, no questions asked, we'll send you home. It's better if you just go ahead and resign at this point. And I had only been there two days and I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will pass this test in six weeks. And I, I spent, invested every bit of time I had when I wasn't in the classroom or on the firing range into passing that physical fitness test, and I did pass it. I, I passed it. I wasn't the first in the class. I didn't get the gold star for the, my running speed, but I passed it, and I thought, there's no way you can keep me from this because I will get this job, and I did, and I actually stayed in the FBI probably longer than any of my classmates, 28 years. Mary Ellen, did you always have that toughness in you? Uh, there was a point in, in reading your bio where you spoke about really ch um, seeing and noticing a change in yourself after your mother died and uh, your aunt and uncle that so beautifully took care of you all those years. Was that a change that came to you after that, or did you have that, you know, from birth? I think there there definitely was a change. After um, my mother died and my aunts and uncles who raised me, I was still in my early 20s. So my support system was gone, and it was gone forever um, because my father had died many years before. So if I 
something happened to me and I needed a safety net for money or for a place to go home to or somebody to help me buy a car, all the things that you rely on your family and parents for, that was gone for me in my early 20s. It just no longer existed. So... I had to I had to rely on myself and I had to um to just tell myself that whatever happened it it fell on my shoulders and I had no safety net but I didn't think of it like that I I didn't become um saddened or upset I I really felt like I had been prepared for it because of the way that I was raised to be independent and confident so it wasn't a culture shock but I knew at that point when I lost everyone that um this was it for me I was on my own at that point and I've never looked back but it did change me yeah. Um, listen, Mary Ellen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about that, the, the role and impact that your mother had on you and your life. We'll be right back. Okay, sure. Where does one turn when faced with the devastating loss of hair from cancer or other medical conditions? When Jamie Levin, owner of Wig Elegance, Wigadoo, and Rosalind Stella's Wig Boutique, lost her own mother to cancer in 2009, she and her husband Rob decided to take over the full-service family-owned wig salons to honor her mother's memory. What their company offers is the personal and private experience that men, women, and children deserve at such a difficult time. To learn more about their unique services and warm and compassionate staff at all three salons, such as a free consultation with expertise, full education, private booths, and clean set and cutting services, go to wigelegancewigs.com or call 215-945-4900. That's wigelegancewigs.com. 215-945-4900. That phone number again is 215-945-4900. And ask for your special offer as a listener to the show on selected items such as $50 off a synthetic wig or $100 off a human hair wig. That's wigelegancewigs.com. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch. I'm joined this afternoon by Mary Ellen O'Toole. She is a retired FBI agent and profiler and the current director of forensic science at George Mason University. And Mary Ellen, I, I wanted to talk to you about your mom and her role in in your life because I, I've read quite a bit about the fact that she made a point to teach you and your siblings um, a great deal about the, the importance of respecting others and being kind to others. And even in light of um, your father leaving the family when you were all quite young, you've mentioned that your mom never, ever spoke a bad word about him. What what did that teach you, um, and, and particularly in, in the work that you did? Isn't that phenomenal? In all those years, I never once heard my mother speak badly of my father, and she could have because um, he wasn't a presence in in our life um, emotionally, physically, or financially. But she never ever said anything bad or unkind. In fact, it was just the opposite. 
And that really taught me the the importance of, of respect. And she did not want to turn us against him or that side of the family. And it was remarkably successful because we did not grow up blaming people for anything in our life. And because at the same time, um, while she was showing respect to him, um, she was also raising us to be very um, happy and grateful for the things that we did have and not to um, be jealous of, of somebody else having more than, than we had. So she never complained. She never talked about other people badly. Um, she was all, always focused on how happy and how fortunate we were for what we had. And it almost in today's society, um, some of your listeners may think that's probably Mary Ellen is living in a dream world. It cannot be. Um, it cannot be happy be that way it was it was probably she's you know she's just recalling it in a more positive light and that's not true i've i've really dissected my family over and over again and to to have been raised by my mother with her outlook on life the way it was it made all the difference in the world for the three of us and really for the entire family and my aunts and uncles with whom we lived um were the same way well, I think it was it was very unique your your situation um, to be surrounded by a group of people that, in spite of the circumstance, all had that kind of mentality. I think that was um, probably a gift. And you know, Mary Ellen, you mentioned that um, you know in, in 1976 you were basically um, on your own. You had just turned 24, and you had lost what you describe as your safety net. Um, you know, the, those aunts and uncles and your mom. But you believed that, and you used the word magic. You said, I believe that magic happened between the time I was one and a half and 24 years old. W- what did you mean by that? Um, what I mean by that is the way in, in which we grew up. And I, and I compare that to the way I hear young people today tell me their, their home life is like or how they were raised and where there's fighting and there's arguing and there's, you know, drinking and, and, you know, mental health issues and it's all very sad and it's, it's heartbreaking to me. The way that we grew up was as a close family. Um, we stayed close. We had meals together at night, every night and Sunday as well. Um, we did things together. There was very little fighting. Um, and on the contrary, there was a lot of laughter. And I still have, I think, um, an incredible sense of humor. I laugh at things um, quite frequently. And my siblings are the, are the same way. So we were taught the importance of being able to, to really have a, a happy outlook. It was a very concerted effort on the part of my mom and my aunts and uncles that we have a good outlook on life. So we we grew up on mottos like get back up, life goes on, roll with the punches, you have a lot to be grateful for. We grew up on those mottos, and, and my mom and my aunts and uncles, they live by those mottos. Tell me what role um, faith played in your growing up years. I know that um, you, you were raised Catholic, and it I seems was. as though it was a very um, important part of your upbringing. It was. We were raised very strict Catholics. I think I'd mentioned my father before um, um, he became an FBI agent, gone into the priesthood and, and uh, became a Jesuit priest. Uh, but for us, um, our our religion was very important, and we practiced it. We were expected to practice it. I went to Catholic 
grade schools and high schools. Um, and that, the idea of having that support network was important. And, and quite frankly, now in my years as a profiler and now um, in my work at the Forensic Science Program here, um, I still do threat assessments, threat assessments for people who could act out dangerously and act out in a violent way. And, and one of the elements I always look for, it's part of the training, when you're assessing whether or not somebody can be dangerous or act out violently towards self or others is do they have a spiritual support network, whatever that may be, whether it's Buddhism, whether it's being a Muslim, whether it's being a Catholic, um, a Baptist, having that spiritual foundation is critical to one's development and to one's outlook in life. And and I think how naturally it came to, to me and to my family, but um, it for me, it was very important now that I look back having that ha- that support network. So that you know that messaging actually contributed, you feel, to to the skills that you had as a profiler. In other words, to to get these these criminals to be comfortable with you and trust you and to open up. I think so. And when I I've spoken to people um, over the years, um, violent offenders and. Um, you know, even the victims or, or family members, there's a deficit in, in some people's lives that would have otherwise afforded them some kind of spiritual support that may have factored into them not choosing violence as, as a course of action. There's a deficit. And again, it's, it's not even organized religion. It is having a different, um, another facet of life that enables you to believe in, in, in certain spiritual things that give you peace and happiness um, on during a period of, of your life where there may be nothing but emptiness and sadness. So it, it really is, it does seem to be important for the human being to have that perspective wherever it comes from. It doesn't have to be a specific religion or belief, but that you have something there. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. So in other words, something that just takes the focus off of yourself that there's something else right. out there other than you. That you can fall back on and right. say, um, you know, help me get through this. Help me understand this. Give me that strength. Right. Whatever it is, because if you feel as though you are completely alone in the world and there is no help, that does create a darkness and a sadness and really a desperation that that can create problems for you personally and and problems with you in terms of interpersonal relationships. Right. You know, Marielle, just before I came into the studio today, um, I I saw a tweet that came out. uh, The White House put this tweet out about uh, the fact that America actually has more people in prison than any other developed country. I wanted to know your your view on that. And I I would, you know, in the line of work that you did, um, I would think you would have more insight into that than than most people and why you think that is and 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 also what you think we might be able to do about it sure yeah that's um if anybody for for anybody that has not been in a jail or in a prison um it's 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 an experience that is is foreign and you you can't understand the the sense that you have when you walk in there and those doors 
bang behind you and and I know when I go in that I can walk out again but when you're in there and in some instances many instances you're there and you will never live leave there for the rest of your natural life it is so depressing it is so dark and black and and discouraging because it's a place that, that where where you know kind of hope just flies out the window so it's very sad to me that what I see now is our 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 penal system is using um, jails and prisons to send, for example, people who are addicted to drugs um, to spend year great chunks of their life there. Um, and we have a lot of people that are suffering from from real serious debilitating mental illnesses. We're we're sending them to to prison with no help of getting any kind of help, and, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that prisons and jails should be used for that purpose because there we should have um, mental health programs and facilities out there where people can go and get help and be uh, rehabilitated. And I do think that people should have a second chance. If if you make a mistake and you do end up going into prison, um, you stand a very good chance of rehabilitation and coming out and having a second chance at life. And, and why not? We would all want that second chance. And, and so for people to come out and feel like, they're shunned. They can't get a job. What are they going to do? That's that's um, that's terrible. If we make people feel like that, they should have the opportunity to have a second chance. So, I think it's not only that these facilities exist for people that shouldn't go there, but I also think that they feel and they do have a kind of a black cloud over their head when they come out, um, and many of them want to come back into their families' lives and society and, and they have paid their dues and they have been rehabilitated and we should help them all that we can. So do you believe then that there are people who, I mean, we know there are people who, who suffer from mental illness and certainly addiction is a, is a huge problem um, in our country, but how about the other criminals who perhaps are really intent on, on you know, uh, being evil? Um, do you think that there – how would you describe the difference, I guess, and do you believe that there is those two types of people and that there are certain criminals that do belong behind bars? Yes, I, I do think that there are some, some people for whom intervention is, is probably much less likely um, to produce positive results. And when you have individuals who prey upon other human beings in – uh, for example, in terms of you know serial murder or serial sexual assault or child abduction, those very extreme crimes where the likelihood of rehabilitation it it's too late in coming yes. um, those are those are individuals that will continue to predate on on others unless they are incarcerated and and i I even hate to say that, and I tell you the reason that i that I do because um I think that if um, there's a good a possibility that when some of these very violent offenders are little are little boys, because most of the violent offenders are men, when they were little boys and they started to manifest behaviors that would be indicative of problems to come, then that would have been the time for intervention. And I do think mental health intervention at a young age 
would have turned around so many young people. They would never have ended up in, in a jail or in a facility. But that doesn't happen. And that's where we need to wake up and realize that the signs of problems to come very often occur at five, six, seven years of age. Let's get people into mental health facilities as, as, as young people and get them counseling and treatment. We'll see the numbers go down. I'm convinced of that. Now, do is that because we just have too many, or is it because the system is the way it is? You mean or too both? many violent offenders? Yes. In other words, why are, we, why are the, the young children not getting the treatment they need at that time, which, of course, would make such a huge difference? It would, wouldn't it? I think for a couple of reasons, and I'll be very honest with you. I think poor parenting has never been addressed. It's just simply not addressed. I think some people are not designed to be parents. I think that the first five years of a a young person's life is when they learn um, how to view the world, how to treat other people, how other people treat them. I think poor parenting is responsible for a lot. I think children um, use moms and dads and aunts and uncles as role models. And if they're surrounded by poor role models, they're at a tremendous disadvantage. So I think that is a, a big issue. I think that there are some things that do have, and we do know this from research, a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. for some for some issues, for example, like addiction. Um, another one is psychopathy. Some people know that term. To, um, they use the term a sociopath. Um, it, that's an old term. The new term is, is uh, psychopathic. But I think that there are some behaviors that that the caregiver, the parents, can see at an early age. And when I when I've talked with some parents and said, your child. You probably need, you need to have the child in counseling. That child needs to be, um, seeing somebody two or three times a week. Um, no, he'll be fine. He'll outgrow it. Oh, it's just a stage. No, it's not. The child, that's not fair to the child. The child needs to get, to get that behavior fixed early. But, but I do see that, um, oftentimes it's, it's, it's the parenting that just ignores it or refuses to see it for what it is. Yes. It's, um, yeah, it's, that's definitely an issue. And I think, you know, the good news is, I, you know, we, we're hearing conversations and awareness about this more often um, than years ago. I think so, and I think that um, there's more information that's available, and I, I, I think if families can, can see that, that um, you don't, you cannot wait until the child is 15 when you're so afraid of the child you're locking your own bedroom door right. that that age, that age range is, comes and goes very quickly. And some of what I've seen over the years, for example, with, um, into young men that go on to, and it's, it's, uh, it's, well, it's becoming more frequent, but mass murderers. They don't just decide at 15 years old that they're going to become a mass murderer. That thinking, that idea of the world is an evil place, that world is a dangerous place, I hate other human beings, other humans hate me, um, violence is the answer to everything. That thinking begins well before 15 years of age, back into um, the the um, the age when they're little boys. That's when we need to address that. That's when we need to address it in school and and teach concepts like empathy and compassion. That becomes really important, and I think it will turn things around. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, we're going to take another break, Marilyn, just one more. And when we come back, I want to get right into talking about the work that you did and how you managed to um, not be affected by it. We'll be right back. Okay. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography, an automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Where does one turn when faced with the devastating loss of hair from cancer or other medical conditions? When Jamie Levin, owner of Wig Elegance, Wigadoo, and Rosalind Stella's Wig Boutique, lost her own mother to cancer in 2009, she and her husband Rob decided to take over the full-service family-owned wig salons to honor her mother's memory. What their company offers is the personal and private experience that men, women, and children deserve at such a difficult time. To learn more about their unique services and warm and compassionate staff at all three salons, such as a free consultation with expertise, full education, private booths, and clean set and cutting services, go to wigelegancewigs.com or call 215-945-4900. That's wigelegancewigs.com. 215-945-4900. That phone number again is 215-945-4900. And ask for your special offer as a listener to the show on selected items such as $50 off a synthetic wig or $100 off a human hair wig. That's wigelegancewigs.com. Welcome back. To women to watch. I'm speaking with Mary Ellen O'Toole this afternoon, a former FBI agent. And uh, Mary Ellen, you know, the, the work that you did was uh, not only fascinating, it was uh, at times dangerous. And you've described it as amazing and incredibly interesting. Um, and I guess I, I, I wanted to know, number one, was there any time that you were afraid um, and also, what was the most difficult part of the work that you did? Because most of what I read was really your 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 own interest in in profiling and behavioral um, analysis. But there must have been some moments where where it was um, you know where you had uh, fear, and 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 I do want to know what was the ch- most challenging part for you in that work. Oh, sure. Um, I'm, this may sound like I'm not being truthful, but I was never afraid except for one time, and that was when 
um, I had to fly the day that the planes went back up following 9-11, and I had to fly across country for a trial. And um, I had to pull off the side of the road and just say, look, you are prepared, you're armed, everything is going to be fine, you know what to do if something happens, now just go and do it. And so that I, I said, you know, I talked myself into um, being okay with getting back on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the work goes, um, I will. I have to say that a patrol officer every day throughout the country, uh, they're stopping cars with people inside of them, and they have n- they have no knowledge of who those people are. Their job is, t- in my opinion, far more dangerous than anything I ever did because of the uncertainty of it, um, and I feel very strongly about that. When I worked, I usually worked with other agents, and most of the time, <laughs> except for one occasion, um, they would have my back, and, and, and I would have theirs. And so there was always that comfort knowing that we had backup um, there was one occasion where I was interviewing um, a suspect um, sitting on top of a grave, and um, the um, FBI surveillance team was supposed to be watching me, but unfortunately my wire, I was wearing a wire, and the wire just for some reason stopped working, so the surveillance team assumed I had concluded the interview and left and gone home. Um, the interview continued for several hours in the middle of the night on a grave as I'm talking to the suspect. And as I left, I'm thinking, our surveillance team is really good because I don't hear the airplane. I don't see the headlights of any other cars. Oh We're gosh. really good. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> I want the listeners to understand you were you were meeting with a a suspect who was a child um, abduction and, and murder mm. suspect. First of all, mm-hmm. why in the cemetery? How did you end up doing? this interview in a cemetery um that was an area where this person was comfortable and so um i knew that and so asked him would you want to go here or to the park or he said no here's fine so i said okay um i wanted him to be comfortable and uh and anyway i knew i had the surveillance team watching me so all was well until it wasn't well until it wasn't (laughs) wow he knew, though. I mean, he knew I I was um, an FBI agent, and so I mean, clearly, if something had had happened, um, you know, he, obviously he would be the pers- first person that they would look at. And as it ended up, he he wasn't the person that was responsible. And I think that's important to say as well. But it was in the middle of the night, and it was it was an unusual environment to do an interview. Yeah, and as I'm driving back, and he's in the car with me, I'm thinking. Boy, are we good. I don't even see those headlights in the rear view mirror. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I I read, Mary Ellen, that people will often ask you this, and I would have too. It's an obvious question to say, um, Are have you been haunted by any of the stories that you covered, uh, the people that you spoke with? I mean, they're, they were just the worst of the worst. And you've said that you haven't, and I, I – I'm so uh, fascinated with that because, um, you know, just reading about these these cases, you know, can can sometimes make me physically not feel well. And so you have this tremendous, sure. you have a tremendous resilience, you have a tremendous spirit. And what would you say it was that allowed you to not let it affect you um, emotionally? 
Well, I, th- I think it's a number of things, and, and part of it is my training as, as an FBI agent. Um, but it's also my outlook when I go in and, and do the work. I'm very, I'm, I'm very passionate about the work. I, I love it, and I, f- I feel that it's important work. And, and you know, I, I kind of talk to myself about how, well, the reason it's important is we have a child missing or we have a woman that's been murdered. And, and I've been, I have an ability, and I hope that I'm able to lend it to this case and, and, and maybe help to make a difference. So um, I'm very pragmatic, but because most of the cases, you, you never solve a case as, as a profiler. You're, you're part of a team. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's very sad when the case never is closed. And it, it doesn't, if, if I'm haunted, it's in that way that mm-hmm. the case is never resolved for the families and for the victims. And that way it, I'm haunted by it. But I compare the work that we did, and I say we collectively, because I, I'm no different than my colleagues um, are or were. If you talk to an emergency room doctor, they see people coming in so beaten up and run over by cars and they're body parts here and there and you ask them how do you do that how how do you do that every day and they'll tell you but i love it i love it yeah i can't fathom that and some people can't fathom what i do but i can just tell you that um i absolutely love listening to other people talk about what it was like to abduct somebody or kill somebody and i find that very fascinating and i can put it in a context that is helpful to the investigation and i've always asked myself that question since the time i was a little girl what goes on in somebody's head when they're killing somebody um and some people may say that's macabre and maybe it is and maybe it's my maybe it's the dna in in my fbi roots i don't know uh, but I take it one step further. How can I use this to further the case? Mm. You know, that's so interesting because I often ask, I've had, you know, uh, multiple guests on the show who their line of work um, has allowed them to see and know about some some tough things. And I will often ask, how, how do you remain hopeful? And there seems to be a commonality in the answer that it is because you are um, – you're making a difference in some way to to help the situation or or make it better or educate and so that seems to be um just a very common thread among people whose work can be very difficult you have to focus on the outcome in other words or or figuring something out or solving a problem or helping someone i think that makes all the sense in the world um you never focus on yourself you focus on how this will help somebody else. That's that's interesting because there are so many people that are doing things I can't believe, um, and they're other focused and they amaze me with their courage. Yeah, tell me, Marielle, do you think that women have an advantage over men um, simply because of their DNA in in the work that you did? Would you say that women um, could be better profilers? simply because of their ability to connect um, with a you know a criminal that's that's a question I get a lot and I would say no um, and here's here's what I've seen here's my experience I've seen um, I've identified traits that I do believe make people better profilers than others and they are is the word unisex 
am I saying that correctly? It can be of traits that are applicable to men as well as women. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the gender, it's the personality traits. And some of those are, are these. Um, people who are empathic, people who are very good listeners and very good observers of behavior, people who are other-oriented so they're not self-absorbed. Narcissism really gets in the way of somebody who um, is a profiler. Um, people who are um, more introverted than extroverted, um, and people who are um, non-judgmental, who are able to sit and listen to someone explain how they murdered a child and not pass judgment on them. And you might in your head, but you don't voice it. Those, and, and but particularly, it's the listening. That's without having an opinion. That's the key. And I've seen those traits demonstrated beautifully in men as well as women. In fact, one of the best investigators I ever worked with um, headed up the Green River Task Force out in Seattle, Washington, Tom Jensen. And he was a marvelous interviewer. And he had all those traits times 10. And he just did a fantastic job in the work that he did. So it's not gender specific. It's personality specific. Mm. Yes. And, you know, listening without giving an opinion, that that is, you know, that's a gift to be able to do that. <laughs> right? It's well, especially nowadays where people think they have to have an opinion on everything, right? <laughs> yes. Isn't that how we are, we almost have been made to think? It's very difficult to stand back and not have an opinion. Yes, yes. You know, I'd love to talk about your role as the um, Director of Forensic Science at George Mason University and talk about the kids that you teach. Um, what do you see that is different in your students from the way that you yourself um, were a student? Um, years ago. Oh, sure. Well, I'm very proud of, of my students. I have undergraduates and I have graduate students. I have about 78 graduate students and about 150 undergraduate students. And what I've seen with, with these, and most of them are women, which I find fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I would say probably 85% are women. And these are, are students that have a very strong science background. I do not have a hard science background. These are chemists. These are um, people that major in biology. And they're wicked smart in the hard sciences and in math. So I'm very impressed with that. That's not that, that's not how um, I went to school. School and when I was going through grade school, math and sciences, they were not really promoted. And um, so these students are coming in with those with those uh, um, talents. They're also um, I'm seeing a passion with with their wanting to become forensic scientists, and they've grown up on programs like Law and Order and CSI and NCIS, and so that's what they that's what they want to do, and they know what they want to do, and I know they've seen it on TV, and they understand that's not the real world, but they're still very passionate about wanting to do it, and then. The one thing I love hearing is I ask them, why do you want to do this? And you know what almost universally they say? I want to help people. And I, I love that when I hear that. Well, that's great. That's for the right reason. It is, isn't yes. it? It really is. Yes. And what, what's the ratio of, of female students to male students? It's stunning. It is stunning. It's um, I'm going to – this is going to be a guesstimate, but um, I would say it's probably <coughs> – I would say 85% female. Oh, wow. Now, that's surprising. Isn't it? Yes. It, yes. it is. 
it really is. Um, it's. I would have thought it would have been closer to 50-50, but when I started and I saw that, I was amazed. And I've asked other people about that, and everybody has an opinion, but it's it's we have a lot of female students. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. We talk about, you know, wanting to encourage more young women to go into the STEM field um, all the time on the show, and um, we talk about mentorship and um, opening up, you know, organizations and programs that will allow these young females to understand that, that you know, they can go into any field, that it shouldn't they shouldn't feel as though there's certain areas that are specifically for males and certain that are for for females um is are there uh mentor programs at george mason is there any type of you know a leadership institute for for the young female students uh we do um we're in the college of science which is exciting um we have a big stem program here very large stem program um, forgive me, it's my asthma, which is a bad day here in Virginia. But um, we have a, a a big program to encourage young women in in grade schools, not just high schools, but grade schools, to go into science and math and technology. Yes, even better, even better. We need to reach them. Uh, I think when they're much younger. Um, are you okay, Mary Mary Ellen? Oh, I'm I'm fine. It's my I never had asthma when I was in California. Then I moved back to Virginia where there are all of these um, things in the trees, and it's beautiful here, but, oh, my gosh, spring, it is a hard time for, for us asthmatics. Yeah, it's, it is. It's the time of year. And do you have something that you take on a daily basis? I do. Um, I'm not particularly good at it, but I do, and I have inhalers and pills. Okay. I know, I hate taking pills. Well, um, we just have a few minutes left. I would love to, to have your um, have you talk about what you think that we can do that's actionable to to help women today um, land those top spots. You know, whether it's on a board or an executive position. I think that encouraging women to be good leaders really has to be. A concerted effort to do that, um, and I, I think there have, has to be courses in leadership. That's the one thing I would like to see more across the board are specific courses just in leadership, whether it's leadership in the military where they do get a lot of training, but also leaderships in the university and, and leadership in private corporations. Our dean of our college is a woman, and I find that very exciting because the young women students coming in can see that we do have women in leadership positions here in the College of Science and throughout the university. So role models at the same time, it's, it's really critical that people can see if they, if they work hard, if they study hard, they can, they can do it and that it's achievable. Uh, but I think some people are born leaders. I do believe that, but I also think that leadership is a skill that you can learn. And I'd like to see us spend more time starting from a very early age to teach people, boys and girls, how to be good leaders. Even if you never make it up to the CEO position, you can still be a good leader. Mary Ellen, we're out of time. I thank you so much. You're a great example of what you just described. Thanks for joining oh, thank us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a great day, everyone. That's it for Women to Watch.